The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Just before we start the episode, I just wanted to have a let you guys know that there was a technical difficulties for the first 15 minutes on the audio, uh, which was corrected and it'll be noted in the um, episode when we get to that spot when we corrected it and so on. There was a little bit of problems with Bruce's mic picking up his voice all the time, so I tried to correct as much as I could on my end, but at the 15 minute mark, we switched devices on his side and were able to correct that error. So I hope you enjoy. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast as we continue the James Whale Retrospective Series. We're now at the midway point, and to break up the that we've been doing 10 movies in a row, we already did five. We got five more to go that we're talking about. I have an author with me, R. Bruce Creelan, who wrote the book The Great War and the Golden Age of Hollywood Horror. And he's going to come to talk to us about James Whale because James Whale is frequently in this book and the movies because obviously the war affected him a lot and his work thereafter. How are you doing today, Bruce? Oh, I'm hanging in there. Not bad. It's a little drizzly here today in uh, northern New Jersey, but uh, pretty good day. Yep. And for listeners wondering, we're recording this on December 11th of 2021. This will be coming out in 2022. So we're getting close to the holidays. Bruce. What led you to um, go into writing? What led you to, to go into this stuff? Because I know you also write for We Belong Dead, so it's, this is not just your only work. Yeah, I started uh, oh, probably, I guess, about 10 years ago or so. I ran across We Belong Dead. Actually, I met Veronica Carlson at a convention in New Jersey, and she an article in We Belong Dead on her had just come out. She had a copy of the, of the magazine, and she was showing it to me. She said, oh, this is a very good magazine, everything. So I said, okay, fine. So I, I looked it up on the internet, uh, ordered the copy from England, uh, ended up connecting with uh, Eric McNaughton, who's the, the editor-publisher or whatever, the, the head guy over there, and um, just started. Uh, actually, my wife and I met him once. He was in the States. Uh, we met him in New York. I had lunch with him, uh, communicate you know, through Facebook and, and stuff like that. Uh, and they had a book coming out called uh, Unsung Horrors. It's supposed to be you know, little snippets on uh, horror movies that are not as well-known or is not as well-loved as, as, as they otherwise might be. And I volunteered. I wrote, I think, three pieces for that, uh, one of which actually got into the book. It was on The Long Hair of Death with Barbara Steele. And uh, the other two, was School with uh, the Veronica Carlson one with uh, Peter Cushing. And... I forget what the other one was, but anyway, the, the two that get into that book, I'm son of unsung horrors, and since then I've done probably a dozen articles for a bunch of the books. They did a pushing book, I did a piece for that. Uh, they did some other horror movie things that I did pieces on. So I've written. They were all mostly short articles, between two to five thousand words. But the uh, the James Whale thing, I had noticed back when I was a kid. I read Dennis Gifford's pictorial history of horror movies. And I, I saw that James Whale uh, 
guess the first credited movie that he did, um, Journey's End, which was based on a war play written by Archie Sheriff. And Archie Sheriff also was a visible man. So I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm a teenager. I'm like, there must be some connection there between James Whale and R.C. Sheriff because he directed the play. And then Sheriff wrote the screenplay for The Invisible Man that Whale directed. I never really thought uh, much of it. Uh, and, you know, life went along. Uh, 1980s, I went to college. I took an English course uh, at Rutgers University brought by Paul Fussell uh, called Literature in the Great War. Uh, he wrote a book called The Great War in Modern Memory, which looks at the uh, war experiences uh, in a literary manner, mostly uh, from the British side. And he looks at the myths and the various things that came out from the war. Participants uh, recounted their war experiences after the war was over, things like that. And then I found out that Whale had been an officer in the British Army on the Western Front. So I started connecting all these things up and some reading and everything. And it started out, I was going to do an article again on Whale's connection with the First World War and Journey's End and Sheriff and all this stuff. And the more I got into it, the more I, there was a lot more, it was more than just an article. It's going to be way too long for an article. I uh, put it together into a book. It started writing the book kind of on the short side. Uh, I contacted uh, Midnight Marquee Press. I was shopping it around and seeing if anybody wanted to publish it. And uh, Gary Spala, this was a few years ago, I guess back in 2018, uh, he said it was good. He really liked short. So I went back in and I embellished it, added things to it and, and, and uh, pumped it up. And it came out in April of this year. 2011. It's available uh, on Amazon, pretty much every major online bookseller. Midmar doesn't do, they used to have their own website and sell their own books. They don't do that anymore. I guess it got to be uh, too much of a hassle. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the book, uh, when I was writing the book, I, I'm also Facebook friends with a fellow named Sam Irvin, who is a film director, uh, multiple Rondo award-winning author. Uh, and he, he was exec, co-executive producer of Gods and Monsters which is a film based on uh, the novel. Originally, it was called Father of Frankenstein. They changed it to Gods and Monsters as a tie-in when the movie came out by uh, Christopher Bram. That It's semi-fictionalized later years. It's got flashbacks to his, uh, his earlier time directing films and flashbacks to his war service and things like that. And Sam is also, his favorite film is Bride of Frankenstein which is heavily covered in my book as well. So I asked him to, if he would write the forward. He said, as long as they put my name on the cover, I will. Uh, so he did very graciously did, uh, and I'm very grateful for that. And he's also helped promote the book, uh, and he's, got, uh, he, he's very good at that. Oh, we all know Sam uh, is very good at promoting. And Sam, for listeners wondering, you can go back in our archive, and you'll see an interview with Sam Irvin. By far the longest interview on our record, three and a half hours, and uh, wow. so, Sam, if you want a detailed deep dive with Sam's life, go into that. And Sam is doing our Bride of Frankenstein episode. As I said, that's his favorite film. So, uh, and actually, the uh, there's a picture in my book with the forward that Sam sent me. He is on the set, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein set that was recreated for Gods and Monsters uh, using the original electrical equipment and electrical equipment that was used in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Also in Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks also dug it up for that. Uh, so uh, Sam did a, did a great job. Uh, my book is pretty heavily influenced by uh, Paul Fussell. Uh, he said he was an English professor at Rutgers. I took his course back in the early 80s. Uh, he then moved on to the University of Pennsylvania. He died, I guess, about eight years ago. Uh, but he wrote a book that came out in 1975 called The Great War in Modern Memory, 
which details the uh, British war experiences. I think I mentioned that before. Uh, won the National Book Award in 1976, uh, National Book Critic Circle Award for Criticism in 1975. Uh, that was uh, his course, and that book, we read a lot of literature, Edmund Blunden, Robert Graves, uh, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, all the war poets. Very interesting course, very, very highly recommended. It's still in print. Uh, I would definitely recommend that they get a copy of that if you get a chance. Uh, the book, basically, my uh, The Great War and the Golden Age of Hollywood is through. Um, parts out, the first chapter is a background. Uh, I figured that a lot of horror movie fans that would be interested in the book may not know a lot about World War One. It's just a very brief outline, I mean, but, but focusing on the British mostly and also going through the organization, the way the British Army was organized, the divisions and corps and, and stuff like that. So the reader reading the book and you know, regiment that James Boyle belonged to and his company and his platoon and things like that would, would understand uh, what that meant. Uh, second chapter is entitled Pity, which is a quotation from Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises. Could you repeat the second chapter? Could you cut out? Oh, sorry about that. You know, my, my book is the greatest technology in the world. Uh, it, it's entitled, Oh, Give Them Irony and Give Them Pity, which is a quotation from The Sun Also Rises, a novel by Ernest Hemingway. Uh, Hemingway's that particular book is not about the First World War, but Hemingway did serve as an ambulance driver for the Italian army. Uh, he saw a lot of action, uh, dealt with a lot of severely wounded men, and was severely wounded himself and hospitalized for quite a long time. And Irony and Pity as dealt with in Puzzle's book, are two of the main literary themes that came out of the war. And they're also main themes that show up in, in James Whale's uh, four horror films that he directed for Universal. Frankenstein, The Old Dark House, The Invisible Man, and Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, chapter three gives a brief history of Universal Pictures. Uh, founded by Carl Lemley, he originally owned, around the turn of the 20th century, he owned a series of... Uh, movie theaters in Chicago. Uh, he decided to produce his own films. Uh, he kind of, by that time, Thomas Edison had patents on virtually everything that covered uh, film production. He bucked the Edison patents, uh, started his own company called Motion Pictures uh, as Imp. contracted as Imp. He was a, sort of an individual guy. Uh, later on, he merged Imp with a couple other in, independent uh, film companies, formed the Universal Film Manufacturing Company, uh, and they made films. Uh, in 1915, he decided to move to California. They Taylor Ranch, uh, turned it into a Universal City, a big studio. That opened uh, at the grand opening on March 15, 1915. And Carl Lemley gave a welcoming speech where he famously said, I hope I didn't make a mistake in coming out here. Uh, so he was he was kind of a character. Uh, Universal then be, they made the, the silent horror films with Lon Chain, Phantom of the Opera, and Hunchback uh, in, in Notre Dame. Yep. Yes, very uh, very. And, and uh, then later uh, he appointed his son uh, Carl Lemley Jr. to be the head of the studio. And Carl Jr. was a big fan of the horror films. He actually was instrumental in getting Dracula made. Uh, Dracula came out in uh, 1931, was a big hit, and Universal at that point announced uh, that they the first time they used the for Frankenstein. Uh, so that chapter in my book, I basically go through like brief uh, sketches of all the Universal horror films from Dracula up to uh, The Creature Walks Among Us, uh, which was uh, two iterations of Universal. They at least had lost control of the studio in the, uh, the end of the 30s. Uh, 
Universal, uh, one, one uh, consortium ran the studio for a few years, and then it became Universal International in the 50s, and Universal International made uh, Abbott and Costello, me Frankenstein, and uh, the Creature movie. The fourth chapter uh, deals with James Whale, his early life, his military service. It covers uh, everything up until the time when he first met R.C. Sheriff and was retained to do the original uh, stage version of Journey Den. Uh, Sheriff had written the play. Uh, he didn't get a lot of positive reaction from the West End theater producers. Uh, the title of Sheriff's Memoirs is called No Leading Lady, and that comes from one of the West End uh, London producers that told him, you know, how can we put this play on uh, on the stage in London? It has no leading lady, because basically the whole play is set. It's a bunch of soldiers in a dugout uh, at the Western Front uh, right before the German Spring Offensive of 1918. Uh, but ultimately, there was a, 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 in, a there were independent theater groups in, in, in whose plays that they felt had literary merit, not much commercial value. And one of those societies decided a sheriff's play. Basically, what they would do is they would go into a theater on Sunday when the regular uh, being shown Sunday evening, and then Monday afternoon, they put their production on, and they'd have to clear everything out when the regular play be resumed. Uh, the play went over very well. It was uh, a producer saw it, liked it, and it ran. It was just made an awful lot of money for uh, hey Bruce, for RC chair. Hello, everybody. Um, we had a little technical issue where um, Bruce's microphone on his laptop was having issues of fading in and out. So we switched over to using it by phone. So you're going to hear different audio difference, uh, audio quality difference. But Bruce, if you can continue on. Uh, sure, I will continue, I think, from where I left off. Uh, I was just saying how the uh, the fourth chapter of the book takes James Whale up to uh, meeting R.C. Sheriff and being uh, hired to direct the uh, initial stage version of uh, Journey's End. Uh, chapter five deals with Sheriff. Uh, it's called uh, R.C. Uh, R.C. Sheriff to the end of the journey and beyond, and it uh, goes through his early life, his military service, uh, and his uh, involvement with, with Journey's End uh, and his sale of the film rights. He sold the film rights for probably not a lot of money uh, before they thought uh, it would be very valuable. He had a dispute with the fellow that he sold the rights to because he was under the impression that they didn't have a firm deal. Uh, he ended up taking the deal because he didn't want to get involved in extensive litigation and problems, uh, but he basically had nothing to do with the film. When the film was uh, uh, was made, he was completely sidelined. Um, chapter six is called Jimmy Goes to Hollywood, and that basically uh, covers Whale uh, from the time he, he went to Hollywood to, uh, to begin his film career with Paramount, where he was a dialogue director on a couple of movies, uh, Paramount, pretty much unceremoniously chose to not uh, continue his contract. Uh, he was kind of uh, disappointed at that point, I think, but it turned out all for the best because then he ended up at Universal uh, where he directed Waterloo Bridge and then went on to do Frankenstein and uh, his other three horror films. Uh, chapter 7 uh, talks about Frankenstein. Uh, chapter 8 uh, deals with J.B. Priestley. Uh, who was a, a novelist, a literary figure, playwright. Uh, he had a radio show, uh, activist, uh, all sorts of things, very, very, uh, very famous life, very well-lived life. And he wrote uh, the novel Benighted, 
which is the book that the film An Old Dark House is based on. Uh, chapter 9 uh, deals with R.C. Sheriff and the Invisible Man, and Chapter 10 covers uh, Bride of Frankenstein. And then I have an epilogue where I look briefly at the lives of uh, Ernest Thesiger, J.B. Priestley, R.C. Sheriff, and James Whale after the period covered in the book up until the times of their deaths. Uh, so that's basically an overview of the book. Uh, everybody go out and buy one. It's really very good. Uh, and I hope uh, people buy it. I hope people enjoy it. And, and one thing I noticed, um, your book is in the top, recently in the top 100 list. Yeah, it came out and I, I didn't even know it. It was a, uh, a, a, um, a website called what a book authority or something, I think. And it, I saw a post on Facebook and it said, you know, the top hundred horror film books of all time. I'm like, okay, let me see what this is. So I clicked on it and I'm scrolling through it. I see uh, number two was the uh, magazine. Basically it was the whole magazine of uh, uh, little shop of horrors that came out a couple of years ago that uh, Sam Irvin wrote on the Frankenstein movie, Frankenstein, the true story, which was the, uh, the, the two part uh, TV film uh, that had James Mason in it. And, uh, Jane Seymour and Jane Seymour and uh, Agnes Moorhead and, uh, and a lot. And he, so he he and he won a Rondo for that. So it's like Sam is number two. So I'm scrolling down. I get down to number ninety two and I see my book is on there. So my book is the ninety second best horror film book of all time. So I'll take it. <laughs> well, exactly. And it's been out and it's been out for less than a year at that time. It's, so it's. Um, it, it, so it can only it, 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 it can only April, mature. Okay. It can only go upward. Yep, yes. <laughs> yep. It came out. Uh, came out in early April. Uh, published by Midnight Marquee Press uh, out of Baltimore. Now, uh, so anyway, I, I understand what you're primarily interested in here is is Wales' military career, military service. Uh, so I'll go through that. Uh, he was he was born uh, in uh, into a working class family in Dudley in. Worcestershire, England, and known as the Black Country of the English Midlands. It was very industrial. Uh, he was born on July 22nd, 1889, the sixth of seven children. Uh, his father, William, uh, was a blast furnace man. He operated a blast furnace, and his mother, Sarah, was a nurse. Uh, Whale had to leave school as a teenager to work to help to support his family. He was a very small, a slight, uh, slightly built child or young man and he really wasn't robust enough to work in the mines or in the mills so he worked as an assistant to a shoemaker and one of the things he would do is he would take the old soles that were discarded that the shoemaker had taken off uh, the damaged shoes and burn them and get the nails the, the metal and collect the metal and he would make a small amount of money by selling the metal to scrap dealers. And he used that money to take art classes because he was a, uh, he had an, he had an artistic bent and he was uh, quite a talented artist with uh, sketching and painting. And he basically kept that hobby up uh, almost until, until the time of his death. And according to one of his biographers, Mark Gaddis, uh, Whale wanted to get himself beyond his working class background and become a, a quote unquote proper English gentleman. So he worked on changing his, you know, eliminating his, uh, his, his accent, uh, speaking, uh, what do they call it? Like, uh, the BBC style English, you know, the upper class, uh, upper class accent. Uh, he worked on that and he was not really, uh, 
interested in the war started in August of 1914, and he really showed no interest in in, in joining at that point. The uh, the British Army was all volunteer. Uh, many people volunteered uh, early at that time, including Ernest Thesiger, who was uh, played Horace Femme in the old Dark House, and uh, Dr. Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, he was older. He was 35. Uh, he enlisted uh, in August of 1914, shortly after the war started. Uh, he was going around London looking for recruiting stations, and there's a, a the London regiment was divided up into different battalions, and each battalion had its own identity. One of those one of those battalions was called the London Scottish, and they wore kilts, and they didn't wear any clan tartans, but they wore sort of a green, uh, subdued like a camouflage looking kilt. And Thesiger thought that he would look marvelous in a kilt, so he went to the recruiting office for the London Scottish and pulled a fake Scottish accent. Uh, and they didn't want him. They said, "Okay, thank you very much, but go somewhere else." Uh, he would actually use his Scottish accent uh, to good to good use in the film *The Ghoul*, which he co-starred in with Boris Karloff. Uh, but he went off to another battalion of the uh, London Regiment, the Queen Victoria's Rifles. They took him. Uh, didn't have a lot of training. He enlisted in August, and by December of 1914, he was overseas uh, on. New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1914, uh, he found himself with his fellow soldiers in Belgium. Uh, the men were ordered to dig in. They were in the very wet uh, climate of Flanders. Uh, they tried to dig trenches, and as, as uh, Thesiger put it in his memoirs, practically true. He said it was like digging at the seashore, that every shovel full of earth they took out filled up with water. So finally, the... Uh, the officers ordered the men to go bed down and spend the night in a big barn. So they all went into the barn, spent the night. They slept in the straw. They all woke up the next morning, and Thesiger had his uh, some chocolate left over from Christmas. So he was sitting with a companion in his barn on the on these hay bales or whatever, and um, they were he was sharing his chocolate with this other guy. And a shell came over, exploded near the barn, causing roof shingles and, and debris and everything to come down on their heads. Uh, all the soldiers got up. They said, it doesn't seem to be very safe in here. Let, let us go outside. Uh, they tried to leave the barn. There was a sergeant outside that said, no, no, everything is okay. Go back in. So they went back into the barn, sat down. Uh, Desiger proceeded to share his chocolate again with his buddy. Another shell came in. This one went right through the roof into the barn, exploded, killed several of the men, uh, wounded many more of the men, including Thesiger, uh, in the hands. He was very badly wounded in the hands. He said he looked down. He didn't feel any pain because he was in shock, but he said his hands were the size of plum puddings and his fingers were sticking out in every which direction. And, you know, he assumed that they were all broken. And he looked across to see if his friend was still there. And his friend wasn't there, but he saw his friend's boots on the ground. And knowing that a boots boots are very important to a, a soldier, he assumed that maybe you know he had taken them off when he was sleeping and hadn't put them back on yet. So he said he must take the boots and, and bring them to his friend because he'd be very disconsolate if he lost his boots. And he couldn't pick them up with his hands because his hands were all mangled. So he thought well, maybe I can like grab the laces with my teeth or something and pick them up. So he bent over and he saw that sticking out of the top of the boots uh, were. You know, pieces of the the, the shin bone uh, and 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 bits of mangled flesh. Basically, his friend had been completely blown apart, and all that was left of him was uh, his feet and the lower parts of his legs that were still inside the boots. 
It's a pretty horrible experience. He talks about uh, being sent back to an aid station, and uh, one of the medics poured iodine on his hands, which caused severe pain, and he passed out. He went to a hospital in, in France and then uh, back to England, and in the middle of 1915, he was invalided out of the Army as being uh, not physically fit for further service because of the damage to his hands. Uh, later in life, he, he undertook, he became an expert in petty point embroidery. Uh, I don't know if that was, if he started that as a therapy to, to help heal his hands, but he became very good at it. He wrote a, uh, a book on it called Adventures in Embroidery. Uh, he actually set up a uh, uh, facility for uh, in, injured, wounded, or shell-shocked soldiers to do embroidery uh, in their own houses so they could earn some money to supplement their pensions. And he was known to, when he was on set, if he wasn't actually being filmed, he was known to sit on set with his uh, with his embroidery and, and work on his projects. Uh, one of his nick- nicknames at that point was The Stitchin' Bitch. Uh, so uh, he was he was quite a character. Uh, but anyway, back to Whale. So Whale had no, uh, no intention of really going to war or anything, but in uh, 1916, uh, there uh, became uh, kicking around the idea of, of, cons- of instituting conscription and drafting people. So when that happened, uh, Whale decided, you know, I don't want to get drafted and be a private, uh, you know, and get stuck somewhere. Who knows where? I'll, uh, I'll enlist and I'll go try to be an officer. And uh, Mark Gaddis says that was one of the things that, you know, Whale figured an officer and a gentleman, and that would help him uh, in his in his task to make himself over from a, a working class lad into a true English gentleman. Uh, there's not a lot of literature or things written about Whale's war experience. It, it's a, covered a little bit in Christopher Bram's novel, Father of Frankenstein. Uh, which was made into the film Gods and Monsters. Gods and Monsters has a couple of flashbacks uh, showing Whale uh, at the Western Front, uh, but really not anything in depth. Uh, So when I was writing the book, I decided to see if I could find any primary sources. And I went online to the UK government archives. And basically, it's it's very, uh, very user-friendly. It's all, everything's online. If you're interested in, any war records, for example, of a, uh, a particular officer, uh, you email them and say, I would like records for these people. Uh, they email you back. They tell you if there's anything available and if there is what it would cost to get the copies. Uh, so I ended up getting uh, the service records for James Whale, for R.C. Sheriff, and for J.B. Priestley, uh, and also the war diary uh, for Whale's unit, which was the 2nd 7th Battalion of the Worcestershire Regiment. Uh, that's very valuable. It covers the whole period that he was on the Western Front. Uh, basically, the war diary was someone who was uh, something that was maintained by an officer who was on the regimental staff. Uh, he or on the uh, the battalion staff rather. He would uh, make brief notes, and there's usually two or three sentences per day uh, of the whole time that the, the unit was in France. So it gives a very good summary. It tells you where they were, what they were doing, uh, what the casualties were. Uh, you know, the officers who were killed are identified by name. Enlisted men who were killed are just known as other ranks, three killed, ten wounded, things like that. But they they weren't big on the names of the individual soldiers. So uh, Wales, the, the one problem with the service records for officers from the British Army in World War One is the main 
archive was located in London where all of the complete records were stored. Uh, that got destroyed by bombing by the Germans in World War II during the Blitz. So the service records that survive are only fragmentary, uh, just ones that happen to be stored in alternate locations. Uh, Wales service record, for example, the surviving part of it is only 18 pages long. His original records obviously we're, we're much more extensive than that but it is what it is and you could uh, there's gaps in the record but you know you can you can uh, pretty much piece together between looking at his service record and looking at his unit's war diary uh, where he was and what happened uh so on uh october 7th 1915 whale joined the inns of court officer training corps uh in lincoln's inn uh, which is one of the inns of court in london uh, as a private to seek a commission as an officer. Uh, he's noted on his uh, intake at the time of being five feet, nine, inch, nine and a half inches tall and weighing 122 pounds. On February 26, 1916, he transferred to Bristol University as an officer cadet. And at that point, he was uh, adopted by a couple in Tyndall's Park uh, who basically kept him in, in cigarettes and, and candy and made sure he had a place to go on on important holidays. In January 19, uh, 20, on January 21st, 1916, he applied for a commission as a second lieutenant, uh, also called a subaltern in the British Army in the 2nd 7th uh, Battalion of the Worcestershire Regiment. Uh, that was a territorial battalion. Uh, basically, the British Army before World War One had two components. They had the, you had the regular army, uh, also known as the expeditionary force. Uh, they were professional soldiers. They were intended to go overseas to engage in whatever wars were needed to, uh, to assist the empire in, in doing whatever it was doing. Uh, and then they also had, uh, each battalion had a territorial component. They were really used for home defense, uh, sort of analogous to the American National Guard. But of course, in the war, they needed so many men that the territorials also went overseas. And after the war had been going for a couple of months, uh, Lord Kitchener, who was the uh, Secretary of War uh, in England, called for a volunteer army. Uh, they called those were known as uh, Kitchener's, Kitchener's Army or also Kitchener's Mob, uh, derisively, although they were very well-trained uh, J.D. Priestley was one of the volunteers in uh, Kitchener's Army in, the, in his unit, and he talks about the, the intensive training that he got before they went overseas. That contrasts with Thesiger, who got basically no training before uh, he got sent overseas and got wounded. Uh, so uh, Wales' application was granted, and he was transferred on probation to the regiment on July 21st, 1916. Uh, his service record doesn't say exactly when he joined the unit overseas. Uh, neither does the war diary, which is curious, as the war diary typically mentions anytime a new officer arrives at the unit. It's noted, you know, Lieutenant Smith arrived today. Whale, for some reason, is not uh, is not uh, noted as when he joined the unit. But since officers were in such such high demand, and it wasn't really very far to get from England over to France. Uh, it was probably very soon after he probably joined the unit, either in late July or early August of 1916. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing how like, um, Bessinger's life story going into it and everybody else's and uh, what happened to him is something I'm sure I know I never knew about. And I'm, 
a lot of listeners are probably amazed with what happened to him uh, in that barn and right and how he became in you know involved in re- rehabilitating the use of his hands probably into embroidering and things like that and and, and how yeah. whales experience with the training and the other stuff going into the war interesting about how i guess because early on in the war they're just trying to rush to get people out and later on they're realizing we need to get the training in otherwise we're just sacrificing our troops well, well mostly it, it, it was sort of the other way around i think and most of the most of the uh people in in, in kitchener's army and that that first round of uh volunteers that volunteered in uh uh, like 1915, most of those guys ended up getting killed on the Somme. And the first day of the Battle of the Somme was July 1st, 1916. The British suffered, uh, on the first day of the battle, 60,000 casualties. Uh, 20,000 of those were dead, and the other 40,000 were either wounded or missing. Uh, and that battle ground on until, until, until November with no real advantage they didn't really they, i think they ended up gaining uh, a little bit of territory but uh, at, a, at a huge huge uh, expenditure of lives the, 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 the way the whole war was managed very <laughs> i mean there, there there is revisionist history now that uh, because everybody seems you, know, you have to come around like every 20 years and change the uh, the narrative uh, the latest stuff says you know while the british they you know they, they dealt with what they had to deal with their officers were really good the generals were good uh, sir douglas hay was a genius uh, i don't buy that i think they they completely messed up and uh they just <laughs> and and Priestley says that if you read his book uh margin released uh, his memoirs where he talks about his war service uh he talks about basically he says uh, uh he lost a lot of friends in the war uh he said basically uh that it was as though the the cavalry generals uh had ridden out of their chateaus on their horses with their polo mallets and beaten all of his friends to death uh, it was not. Um, he also said that, unlike other armies, that the, the British didn't really treat the troops uh, as though they were soldiers. They treated them. Uh, the, the officers were mostly upper class. The soldiers were mostly working class. And Priestley said, I don't know if I have the uh, the exact quote, but he said they basically treated the men as uh, as under gardeners, second sons. Uh, or slum lads known to the police, and that they basically had to keep them, uh, you know, keep whipping them into shape, or they would soon turn into a rabble. And the the, the French and the Germans would hold a, a line with a you know certain number of people. Uh, the British would like jam a whole bunch of men in there that they didn't really need, and uh, you know just have them start things to just keep them busy, and you know, and it, it just they just didn't uh, they just didn't. Uh, was not very well managed, but I, I, I digress. <laughs> but in any way, uh, uh, around the time that Whale went to his unit, uh, it was in a uh, the, the Neuf Chapelle sector north of Arras. Uh, he was not luckily uh, did not get his unit did not get caught up in the Somme attack. Uh, they were in a, a different area of the front. Uh, and the war diary, it, it's kind of, I, I quote it pretty extensively in the book. Uh, it, it, it's a little on the dull side, but it just gives you an idea of uh, what the men were doing. Uh, a lot of it is uh, they're not actually in the line. They're in reserve. And when they're in reserve, they're usually working and doing fatigue parties and uh, things like that. Uh, July 20th, uh, they relieved 
another unit, the second four and second six Gloucesters uh, in the trenches. They lost another rank killed, one wounded. Uh, the adjutant was evacuated sick to England. Uh, they continued in those trenches uh, through July. They got relieved sometime in August, uh, went back, and this kind of went back and forth and back and forth. Uh, they went uh, into the line, out of the line. Uh, typically, the way it worked is uh, a company of the, the, a, 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 a regiment did not go into battle as a as a as a uh, cohesive unit. Uh, the battalions of the regiment would be split up uh, and would be part of a brigade, which would be part of a division. Um, typically, and then the battalion was made up of companies, usually four companies of about 100 men each, and the companies were divided into four platoons, and the platoons were divided into four sections. Uh, sections were commanded by a non-commissioned officer, a sergeant, or a corporal, uh, were about 12 men. Uh, a platoon was commanded by a second lieutenant or first lieutenant, and a company was commanded by a captain or a major. Uh, generally, a company would go in uh, to, to the trenches. Uh, they would start in the front-line trench. They'd spend about a week there. The trenches were in three lines. There was a front-line trench, which directly faced the enemy across no man's land. Uh, then behind that was a, uh, a support trench, and then behind the support trench was a reserve trench. The idea was that you would have uh, defense in depth, that if the trenches were overrun, if the frontline trench was overrun in, a, in an enemy attack, the soldiers from the uh, reserve line and the support line could come forward and, and help launch a counterattack to try to, to expel the enemy. Uh, the trenches were also all connected together uh, by communications trenches, which basically ran perpendicular to the firing trenches, and they went all the way to the rear. Sometimes they could be more than a mile long. Uh, they typically started out in a village, uh, and then by the time you got close to the front, you were completely underground. Uh, so you were not exposed to enemy fire at all. Um, well, actually, the, the play journey's end is confined entirely inside uh, a British dugout on the Western Front. In the film, Whale actually brings the camera out of the dugout for a number of scenes. He has some scenes out in the trenches. He has uh, a scene of the, uh, the daylight raid that the British make on the German trenches, and he shows the Germans attacking. Uh, but he also shows, at the beginning of the movie, he shows the, uh, the men moving through a village and going into a communications trench to go up, go up to the front. Uh, so the unit, they would first they would go up to the, the front line trench. They would spend about a week there. They'd get rotated to the support line, and then about a week there, they'd get rotated back to the reserve line, and then they would go to the rear uh, for periods of quote unquote rest, uh, which generally involved uh, training and uh, a lot of hard labor. Uh, so basically, Wales' existence went on and on and on uh, until there's there was one interesting uh, incident. In August of 1916, the uh, war diary notes that the unit fired 450 rifle grenades uh, between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. into the German trenches. Uh, the next day, notes, they were shelled by enemy 5.9s, which were German artillery pieces firing 5.9-inch shells, uh, for two hours in the afternoon, which resulted in uh, two other ranks being wounded. Uh, in all probability, uh, some of the German units were very belligerent. 
some were live and let live, and if you didn't bother them, they didn't bother you. And the uh, the two hours of shelling on uh, August fourth was probably in repayment for all those rifle grenades that they had fired over uh, the previous day. Yeah, I can see if you got you know one of those um you you hit me, I'm going to hit you back, and I'm going to hit you back harder. Yep. Type thing. And, 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 and trench warfare, you're so close to each other. Day after day, month after month, and stuff like that, it's it, it makes for an interesting dynamic. Yes, that's for sure. And, I, again, it depends on, you know, some of the units, uh, some of the German units were, were relatively uh, passive or uh, or uh, pacific, and some of them were, were not. Some of them were, were much more aggressive. Although the Germans typically, uh, they didn't really mount a lot of offensives uh, against the British. They were sort of content to sit there in their – very well-constructed trenches, which were much more elaborate and much more well-engineered and well-designed than the British trenches were. Uh, they were just sort of content to sit there, let the British attack them and suffer casualties. Uh, and a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the fighting that went back and forth was exchange of artillery fire. And um, uh, Priestley, J.B. Priestley, talks about that, of the, uh, the noise of the constant artillery fire being the thing that really got to people. It was not, you know, if you uh, uh, if you kept your head down in the trenches and you weren't too unlucky, you probably weren't going to be killed. Um, but, you know, just that constant constant noise, and not just the noise, but that, you know, you, you can feel the sound waves in your chest. And the bombardments were, were so loud sometimes that you could, you could hear them in England. Uh, if the wind was blowing the right way, you could hear the artillery uh, when when you were in England. So it was uh, it was uh, really not uh, not conducive uh, to retaining one's mental health being exposed to that over and over and over again. Which I think the movie Journey's End shows really well how the mental health yes. with the officers and some of the soldiers are, are being affected with the day to day circumstances well, yeah, that and, they're going through. Yeah, the character of Stanhope, who was played uh, in the play and in the film by Colin Clive went on to play uh, Henry Frankenstein in, in Frankenstein and Bride, uh, had been uh, a young officer. He had been there, you know, he became a captain. He had been there for two years, but he had become basically a functional alcoholic because of the pressures. Uh, you know, the first thing, they, they, they have the big buildup where uh, Raleigh arrives in the uh, in the trenches and, and uh, Osborne, uncle, is telling him that, uh, you know, stand up is that he's, he's the best, uh, captain, best officer we have in the division. He's a fine captain. He's a wonderful guy. And he, he walks. The first thing he says when he walks in, he's looking for his whiskey and he, uh, and whale kind of does it to say that Stanhope comes in sort of the same way as, uh, he doesn't come in backwards, but he sort of comes in through the dark and then his interest is introduced into the light kind of the same way that he introduces the monster for the first time when he, uh, when he uh, comes in in, in, in Frankenstein. So, uh, yeah, and I think that's that, that's the interesting thing I like with your the whole concept of your book is things that happened in real life to Whale being utilized in his cinema, you know, from the experiences that he had in World War One and how and like like everybody that is a creator, a creative type, or anything that you do in life, you're affected by what you went through earlier on. You know, you're a sure. product of your experiences, and so it can't be helped. You know, you might not show it externally. But it's definitely mm-hmm. affecting you internally. Yep, and and a lot of the uh, a lot of the people who participated in the uh, in the Universal Films were uh, had served in the in the in combat in, in the First World War. Claude Rains uh, was uh, served in the British Army. He was 
uh, wounded in a gas attack, which affected his voice, which gave him his voice kind of the distinctive timbre that it had. And he also was uh, 90% blinded in one eye, which was something that he, he took great pains over the course of his life to conceal. Uh, Charles Lawton saw service uh, briefly uh, on the uh, on the Western Front. He also was uh, was uh, suffered in a gas attack. Uh, Raymond Massey served in the Canadian and the artillery in the Canadian Army. Um, so, so there, there, there were a lot. So a lot of those guys were ended up. A lot of those guys who ended up either being actors or otherwise involved in in in, in the theater and film, uh, not only served in the military but saw active combat. So it was it was a fairly common thing. Uh, another thing that's not really reflected in Wales' record, but uh, typically officers in the British Army would get uh, about every three months or so they would get two weeks leave, uh, and Wales presumably must have had three or four periods of leave while he was over in France. Uh, that no, none of the records reflect exactly when that was. Uh, Paul Fussell points out in his book that. Uh, what makes the First World War unique from the British experience, at least with respect to the Western Front, is how close it was to home. I mean, you think of, uh, say, World War II, you know, American soldiers, they're over there in France, they're in Italy, they're in North Africa, they're in the Pacific on some island somewhere. They're far away from home. Uh, they don't really have any contact with home other than letters and packages. Uh, but British officers, basically, they could they could go, uh, they could get on a, a the same channel boats that they took when they were civilians, the same, and, and go across and, and go back to England. There's uh, one officer who was noted as uh, having had his breakfast in the trenches and his dinner at his club in London. Uh, so it was, it was a very, very bizarre contrast between, uh, you know, what they say, like the, the filth, filthy, stinking stench of the, uh, uh, of the trenches and then, and then being, you know, sitting in a, a seat in a theater in the West End watching a play or eating in a fine restaurant or dining at your club. Uh, it was a definite, definite, uh, huge contrast. Uh, also, but anyway, so what? Oh, sorry. Also, I was saying, also tying in with that, that also reminds me of Waterloo Bridge, where you would see officers coming back for that two week pe period and they would um, right. um, want to satisfy certain needs uh, yes, with yep. certain people. And uh, which is the concept going around Waterloo Bridge, which is the whole yep. where they'd meet where they'd meet the um, people to help them satisfy those needs. Yeah, although they also they also had there were brothels in France as well, and they were like there were so they had separate ones for officers and enlisted men. So they weren't that they weren't really. Uh, I don't know how officially involved the army was in that, but they 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 they, they had segregated segregated brothels, you know, officers in, in one and, and uh, other ranks in another. <laughs> Well, I guess, and I guess another it, thing that was it's, it's, every army wants to have their um, their um, control. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, another interesting thing is you could you could go to the the, the uh, famous London department store, Fortnum and Mason. You could go to Fortnum and Mason, and they're famous for you could order hampers that have wine and food and cheeses and stuff. And I mean, you could send a uh, someone in England could send a hamper from Fortnum and Mason to uh, to a, a soldier in, in, uh, over in France or in Belgium. Uh, they actually had one of their, their um, catalog they put out for Christmas 1915 uh, talks about how to send things to, to prisoners of war. And uh, the catalog says customers must be prepared for parcels taking in exceptional cases a very long time to arrive. 
bread having been found unsatisfactory, the firm recommends a substantial fruitcake called Scotch Bun that you could send to your uh, relative or friend who was who was in a, a POW camp over in Germany. So it was uh, it was a, a bit of a different world. I mean, certain things. I mean, certain the, the many aspects of the war were were horrible, but other ones were uh, sort of extremely ordinary when you think about it. Uh, so anyway, Wales Wales uh, service sort of continued, and uh, you know, I, I go in a lot of detail in the book. I don't want to go through it here, but it just yeah. uh, you know you can certainly uh, you can read it. But uh, in, in August. Uh, 1917, the unit ended up, uh, at the end of August 1917, they ended up, uh, they relieved the 2nd, 1st Buckinghamshire Battalion uh, in the frontline trenches in in the Ouija section at, uh, near Ypres uh, in Belgium. Um, they, uh, the war diary records uh, nine other w- ranks wounded and one other rank uh, sus- having sustained a self-inflicted wound during the course of the relief. Uh, on August 24th, uh, they sent out a platoon to attack a German strong point called Einshaus, uh, which was in, the, in front of the British line. Uh, the war diary notes that attack as unsuccessful. Uh, one other rank killed 11 wounded and one man later dying of the wounds that he suffered. Uh, the evening of the next day, August 25th, uh, 1917, they mounted another attack at 11 o'clock. Uh, this one was led by 2nd Lieutenant Whale. Uh, it was part of a broader attack uh, involving assaults on the Schuler and the Gallipoli farms, which were further off to the east from where the Einshaus was. Uh, the war diary says, uh, I quote, uh, one platoon A company under 2nd Lieutenant Whale took Ains House, but were driven out. Second Lieutenant Whale, 12 other ranks missing. Casualties killed other ranks, three wounded. Lieutenant Blackburn, GMI, and Second Lieutenant Hutchinson, AN, and nine other ranks wounded. Uh, Other rank one dies from wounds. So Whale basically was captured uh, on that raid. Uh, He, after the war was over, the the British undertook... uh, investigations of all the officers that had been captured to determine whether or not they were in, that they uh, were, had suffered any blame uh, for the circumstances that got them captured. So Whale got one of these inquiries uh, in 1919, and on January 3rd, 1919, he wrote, I'm going to read this, but it, it's pretty interesting, and it's Whale's own, uh, own words. Uh, Sir, on the night of August 23rd, 1917, at 11:30 p.m., he actually got the date wrong. It wasn't the uh, it wasn't the 23rd. It was the uh, in fact the 25th. I was sent with two platoons to attack a German strong point consisting of a concrete emplacement containing machine guns and a trench immediately behind it manned by enemy machine gun. I reached my first objective, the concrete impl- emplacement detailed an NCO and a section of men to occupy same as ordered by my commanding officer, then went forward to assault my second objective, the trench and machine gun. By this time, I had only a dozen men with me. The remainder were killed or wounded. There was a very heavy machine gun barrage coming from the enemy front, both sides, and when we got to within a dozen yards of my second objective, I had only two men with me, my platoon sergeant and my orderly. Telling these to lie low in a shell hole, I jumped from shell hole to shell hole, trying to find a few more men, stragglers or slightly wounded, to make the final assault. 
But whilst looking for my men, I wandered right through the German lines and jumped into a hole, an outpost, I presume, filled with Germans. I was overpowered, knocked down, disarmed, and escorted back by a party of six Germans to Germany. <laughs> I am, sir, your obedient servant, James Whale, Lieutenant, 2nd 7th Worcester Regiment. Uh, on July 22nd, 1919, the War Office notified Whale that he was uh, absolved of any blame, that he was, uh, the circumstances uh, consider no blame attached to him in this matter. So uh, he ended up a prisoner of war. Uh, he actually wrote an article which went much beyond his recitation uh, in the investigation of the army into the circumstances of his capture. He wrote an article that was published in the August 19 issue of a magazine called The World, the Wide World Magazine, which was kind of a uh, you know very much uh, British imperial spirit boy's own adventure. Uh, you know stories about big game hunting and. Uh, you know, encountering, uh, you know, the natives in their own uh, habitat and things like that, all that sort of thing. Uh, and, and Whale wrote an article entitled, Our Life at Holzminden. Uh, Holzminden was a prisoner of war camp uh, in Brunswick in Germany that was a former German army barracks that was converted into a, uh, into a POW camp and that held British officers. Um, before he got the Holzman, then he was uh, batted around a little bit back and forth from the, to various holding facilities and other prisons. But Holzman then was where he spent uh, basically the, the remainder of the war as a prisoner. He basically said it was unpleasant, although it got a little bit better when he started getting the food parcels coming from the Red Cross. And he described, he has a very, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he has a very detailed narrative of his capture and how he ended up. And he was manhandled by the Germans and how he had uh, been brought before a Prussian officer. And he was uh, tired. He had walked for miles and miles and miles. And we got into the room with the Prussian officer. Wales sat down on a, on a crate. And that enraged the Prussian officer that the prisoner would sit in front of him. So they threw him out of the office. He had to wait outside and come back in again and make sure he didn't sit down. He tells some fairly amusing stories about the uh, uh, Niemeyer, uh, Captain Niemeyer, Hauptmann Niemeyer was the uh, commandant that Holzman and was a very unpleasant fellow. Uh, Whale tells how the, uh, uh, the prisoners used to you know, yell his nickname at him and things like that when he was out, in, in, in the, uh, out walking about. Um, but one of the things that Whale encountered when he was in the POW camp, which basically formed the rest of his life is the prisoners had an amateur theatrical group and they put plays on and uh, the plays, the, the, the uh, prisoners acted in the plays, they directed the plays, they did the, uh, the stage handwork, they painted the scenery, basically did everything they had to do. And the plays were, were very elaborate. They were popular not only with the their fellow prisoners, but also with the Germans. The guards and the officers at the camp would watch these plays. Uh, they would send away to other parts of Germany to get elaborate costumes to use in the plays. Uh, it, was a, it was a big thing. And Whale, uh, he did some acting in the plays. He did some set design, painting sets, things like that. And that it became, uh, at that point, he got the bug, basically, to, uh, to go on the stage uh, to work on the stage when he got back to uh, when he got back to uh, England. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 what he says, and this is, I, I, I will read this. This is what he says in, in the article about the, uh, the, the, the amateur dramatic society. 
He says, the British Amateur Dramatic Society was always a source of great pleasure and amusement to me. The first rehearsals of any play, particularly a good melodrama, or about the maddest shows I have ever witnessed. To an outsider, the sight of each character straining to get off his lines, shouting at the top of his voice, utterly oblivious of the rest of the cast or the poor devils next door, must have been, to say the least, a trifle strange. I do not think I have ever been in any room where there was such an awful mess as in the Holzman and British Amateur Dramatic Society. Pots of paint, wigs, flats, and all the properties in true bohemian confusion. And yet on show nights, they jumped together like magic. It was amusing to see a great hefty fellow go into this room half an hour before the show and emerge on time as a charming young thing of 18 summers and a Clarkson wig. Basically, that was... Uh, that was Wales, uh, his, his big war experience. And that was really the only thing uh, that he really talked about after the war was uh, his time at Holzman and, and his, his work with the amateur theatrical group. He never really discussed his war experiences uh, or how they affected him. But, you know, they certainly did because everyone who was involved in that uh, was affected. Uh, one of the other things that Wales did when he was in uh, – when he was in the POW camp, which was quite lucrative as he would play cards. He would play bridge uh, and other card games with his fellow officers for money. They would gamble. And the uh, when he won, the other officers would, would do a little chit. And he said basically on anything, you know, bits of shaving paper, you know, backs of matchbooks and everything, they would write out uh, little IOUs, which were perfectly negotiable when he got back to England. Uh, so when he got back to England, one of the first things he did was to run around to all these banks and cash all these uh, all these little chits in uh, before the, his fellow officers would have a chance to try to stop payment. And that got him a little nest egg. Uh, he also sold some of the drawings that he had, had done in the in the camp. The magazine article contains about a half a dozen of his drawings. Uh, very very interesting. He's got one of the uh, of the theatrical group, uh, and, and he made uh, 100 or 200 pounds or so from this, which he, he used as a nest egg. Uh, it was too expensive uh, housing, and, and the cost of living was was too expensive in uh, in London. So he moved outside of London and then began to be involved in uh, uh, with uh, a repertory company in Birmingham. Uh, he fell in with a fellow named Nigel Playfair, who was an impresario that uh, put on uh, plays all over all over England. He was in uh, Playfair's group for a while, off and on. Uh, he met Elsa Lancaster. Elsa Lancaster had a little nightclub called the Cave of Harmony, uh, where people would come and, and hang out and dance, and then they would uh, they would put on shows, either like uh, little skits or musical shows and things like that. Uh, and that's basically. Uh, uh, oh, the other thing that was very interesting: the, the armistice was November 11th, 1918, uh, but the prisoners did not get out of. Uh, of the camp for about another another month, they didn't weren't released from the camp until the beginning into early part of December of uh, 1918. But on the day that they were going to be released, they decided that they wanted to have a big bonfire to celebrate. So they basically took anything that was made out of wood and could be moved, furniture, tables, chairs, whatever, uh, started a fire. Started out as a small fire. They threw all the stuff in it. It became a big bonfire. The German guards were not happy. Uh, because 
uh, they thought, you know, they, they were going to be taking this stuff home with them when they, when, the, when they left. They were going to take the chairs and the tables and everything and bring them home. Uh, but they, they tried to put the fire out with hoses, but the, the prisoners would cut the hoses. And they had this huge fire. The, the people from the surrounding towns thought the camp was on fire. And they came and, like, pressed in around the fence and, and watched. And he said they were uh, – the, the, all the, the British prisoners were dancing around, he said, like wild Indians around this big bonfire. And I was uh, speaking with Christopher Graham, who wrote Father of Frankenstein, and he mentioned uh, I had sent him a copy of the article because he hadn't seen it. And he mentioned that scene and he said, you know, that reminds me of the, the scenes at the end of Frankenstein and the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein when the mill is on fire and all the villagers are around cheering and, you know, waiting for the monster to die and all that stuff. And I said, yes, you're, you're right. That's all. I'll put that in the book. Thank you very much for that thought. Uh, so that is, you know, there, there's an image which uh, certainly may have come from um, from uh, Wales' experience at the camp. Uh, and they, they got on a train, basically went across. Uh, they said when they got out of Germany, they, there was a great, uh, great rejoicing. Uh, and they came back to England. And then he, as I said, he cashed in all those IOUs. And uh, began his his career uh, in Britain as uh, first as a he did some acting uh, he did some set design uh, did a little bit of directing uh, and uh, basically that uh, led to into uh, the end of the 1920s when he was approached to direct Journey's End so uh, that's kind of Wales Wales War Service and how it related to uh, to what uh, he would do in his later life. And I just find it fascinating, you know, like I said before, about how these experiences in the past affect them down the road. One other question I want to ask you, I don't want you to, you don't have to talk about a particular movie specifically. For a couple minutes, what were some of the, like, things that you noticed, besides what you already mentioned, in the films like Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and The Old Dark House, that were, that you can definitely pull from his work well, certainly one, one, one of the themes uh, that, that, that Paul Fussell discusses as, as, as a major British theme coming out of the war is uh, there, there had been this uh, sort of belief in progress, that society was getting better and better and would continue to get better. Uh, and, and the war pretty much destroyed that whole idea that, uh, that, 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 that uh, you know, society was progressing and that things would, would continue to get better. And also developed a, a distrust in technology because it was the same thing. You know, they had the industrial revolution and everything got better. You know, you had the labor saving devices. You could ride on trains and travel great distances and it was all wonderful. Uh, but then you had all this stuff coming up in the war, like the machine gun and the airplane that uh, not only did they drop bombs on people on the ground, but they fall with each other in the air, poison gas, uh, all these wonderful things that technology developed, uh, that, that, that science and technology was uh, definitely a two-edged sword. Uh, and the idea that the war, a lot of people thought when the war began that the, it was going to be over by Christmas. You know, we, we would mark, There had never been really a, a major war on the European continent in 100 years. So nobody really knew what it was going to be like. Everybody thought, you know, we were going to have flags and bands and march over there and we'll give the Germans a bloody nose and, and the war will be over. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, the uh, emperor of Germany, actually gave a speech uh, to a bunch of German soldiers who were departing for the front uh, in August uh, on their way to, the, to, to, to battle, saying that you will be home before the leaves have fallen from the trees. And of course, the war went on for more than four years after that. So uh, they were wrong. So 
you have the irony of the expectation of, 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 you know, that it's going to be a short war and everything will be wonderful, uh, turning out to be, no, it's going to be a long war. You have the irony of the summer of 1914, which was supposedly one of the most idyllic summers ever. It was warm. It was sunny. It never rained. You could leave your books out all night on your, uh, on your little picnic table to read them the next day. And you, you were confident it was never going to rain. It was beautiful. It was marvelous. And then immediately after that, the world gets plunged into this horrible war. Uh, so you see these themes in, say, a film like Frankenstein, you know, the, the, the the, the malignity of, of, of science and technology. Henry Frankenstein builds this monster. He doesn't want to build a monster. He's trying to create a man and show that he can, uh, he's, he's found the source of the, the great ray that first brought life into the world and all of this stuff. But he ends up creating this, you know, murderous monster. Um, so that his expectation does not, it, whatever his expectation was when he did it, did not line up with the result uh, as it came out. Um, you see the same thing in The Invisible Man. For some reason, Jack Griffin is, is, is experimenting with uh, monocane, which he doesn't realize uh, causes insanity because it was the uh, it was only in some obscure German work that Professor Cranley or whatever his name is had happened to see uh, completely by accident. So, of course, Griffin makes himself invisible and then he goes insane and goes on a you know a murderous race. Actually, much more murderous than the. Uh, the, mo- the monster is in Frankenstein, and I'd argue the monster in Frankenstein really isn't particularly murderous, despite the criminal brain, but that's a different issue. But uh, So he obviously didn't expect uh, what he got when he did his invisibility experiments. Um, the Old Dark House, uh, the book actually, Benighted, goes into a lot more of the uh, psychological things behind the character who, who was the... Uh, Oh, and hang on a minute. I'm going to uh, I'm going to I'm going to look this up because I don't uh, I don't have this one right at the tip of my tongue. A uh, Penderel, uh, Penderel's character as the uh, you know the, the sort of the the, the broken uh, war veteran who really hasn't really is suffering from basically PTSD and is he can't put his war experiences behind him. Uh, the other character, the uh, Raymond Massey character, is also described as being a war veteran, but he is not like Penderel. He doesn't. Uh, He's not dwelling on it the way he is. And in the movie, he only basically mentions it when uh, uh, Horace Femme offers the toast mm-hmm. to illusion. And uh, he says, you know, you're probably too young to appreciate that. And, and Pendrel says, no, I'm, I'm, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I, I'm, I appreciate it very well. And he and Femme says, oh, you must be one of those damaged by the war or something. So that's uh, th- th- those themes are, are brought out more in the book. Uh, the other thing that uh, theme is the idea that you know bad people uh, stayed home, shirked their responsibilities, uh, profited from the war, became war profiteers, you know, making munitions and stuff like that, and they were the ones that became successful, while all the uh, the, the good people were were killed. And uh, he talks, Pendrel talks about it in the book, talks about his brother, uh, who was like the greatest guy in the world who was killed on the Somme. So, so that theme sort of underlies the old dark house. It's not brought out as explicitly in, in that film uh, as, uh, as it is in the book, but it's, it's still there. Bride of Frankenstein, I think, is, is, is particularly interesting. Uh, you know, the, you have the, uh, the crucifixion imagery and the Christ imagery. You know, the scene where the, the villagers capture Frankenstein and tie him to the pole and lift him up. They're going to dump him in the cart. But before they dump him in the cart, he's sort of standing there for a couple of seconds. And uh, the, the 
standard take on that has been uh, from Gifford's book and, and everything on that I've ever read. It's, you know, Whale is, is mocking the crucifixion. He's mocking organized religion. Uh, but if you look at one of the big mythic themes that came out of the, the, uh, the First World War, from the British perspective, it was crucifixion imagery. And there was a legend that was widely circulated, probably not true, took many forms, uh, called the Crucified Canadian. Supposedly, the Germans captured a Canadian soldier and crucified him and stuck him up uh, in no man's land where he could be seen by all of his comrades on the other side. And he died very slowly while hanging on this cross. Uh, there was another story of a German cavalryman who crucified a guy to a tree with bayonets, same thing, who died slowly. There was a story in an American newspaper of two soldiers that were crucified by the Germans. There were uh, images of crucifixes all over France and Belgium, which were Roman Catholic countries, uh, the kind of things that they didn't have in England. They had uh, a roadside crossroads cavalries. Uh, Calvaries at the, the you know crucifixes with little roofs on them uh, on uh, almost every crossroad in, in Belgium and France, and the British troops would see these as they marched through. There was also a huge cavalry in the cemetery, the town cemetery of Ypres, and it was said to be miraculous because a, a German a dud artillery shell had lodged between the figure of Christ and the cross, and was sitting there was there until. I think like the late 1960s until they took it down because the uh, the cross had become weathered and was falling apart. Uh, so the and, and they also Fussell talks about uh, one of the punishments the British Army meted out to recalcitrant soldiers was field punishment number one, where they would take a guy and uh, lash him to some immovable object with his arms outstretched. And his feet tied together, which obviously resembled the crucifixion. And there, you know, people commented that the, the army would really do well uh, to not use punishments that remind the men of the crucifixion. And ultimately, uh, they stopped doing that shortly after the war. Uh, the war had, was going on. They, they stopped with the field punishment number one thing. But uh, and the the other thing was this this idea of you know soldiers uh, the. the, the company grade officers, lieutenants and captains, as sort of uh, shepherds of their their soldiers who were the flock. Edmund Blunden actually ends his, uh, his brilliant memoir, Undertones of War. Uh, the final sentence in the book is, no destined anguish lifted its snaky head to poison a harmless young shepherd in a soldier's coat. And Christ, of course, is both uh, seen as the shepherd of the uh, of, of Christian people, and also uh, the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So you've got all these images of lambs and Christ and, 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 and soldiers and shepherds and everything floating around. And uh, Robert Graves talks about a book called The, the Brook Kareth, which came out, I think, in 1916. It's a fictionalized account. It basically, the premise of the novel is Christ wasn't really, he wasn't the, 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 the redeemer. He wasn't the son of God or anything. He was just a guy, and he didn't die on the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea took him down and nursed him back to health. And uh, he went off to live uh, with a band of uh, religious hermits at, at, uh, in a mountain fastness above the brook Kareth which was a stream. So uh, Graves said that, uh, you know, soldiers 
looked upon Christ as a not as a you know, from a religious standpoint of it, what he called organized Pauline religion, but as a fellow sufferer uh, who you know they were suffering many of the same pains and and things that Christ had suffered. Uh, there are a bunch of war poems that talk about uh, uh, you know the soldier as Christ, um, Siegfried Sassoon. Uh, in the Redeemer, he sees uh, his men are working in a trench, you know, carrying planks to shore up the uh, the sides of the trenches and everything, and they're slipping in the mud. And he uh, he sees a, a flare goes off, and he sees one soldier has a load of planks on his shoulders, and he says, uh, you know, I, I say that he was Christ. And I think you know, you look at all of this stuff together, and I think what Whale was doing in Bride of Frankenstein was using the the monster as sort of a Christ-like figure, not in a blasphemous sense, but as a fellow sufferer, as uh, as that uh, the theme from the war that uh, you know he was uh, he didn't ask to be where he was. Uh, he was used and abused by everybody uh, pretty much unfairly. As I said before, the the idea of the you know the criminal brain and the murdering monster. Well, he's not in the first movie in Frankenstein. Uh, he kills Fritz. But he kills Fritz because Fritz is tormenting him uh, with the torch. He kills Dr. Waldman, but uh, Dr. Waldman was about to dissect him, so he sort of had a reason for doing that. Uh, and I don't think he really killed anybody else in the first movie. The second movie, he's a little more murderous. He ends up uh, killing Maria's parents right out of the get-go uh, when he's climbing up out of the mill. But again, you can sort of sympathize with that a little bit because, you know, he had just been uh, a whole, whole mob full of villagers who just tried to kill him by burning him alive in the mill. So he'd be a little bit ticked off, I guess, at the people that he saw when he came up. But uh, you know, the inter- he has the interlude with the with the with the hermit, with the blind hermit, and that shows that you know, he's not just a unreasoning killer. That if he's treated with kindness, he uh, uh, he, he 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 can be uh, he can be redeemed. He can be uh, he can be a reasonable fellow, and he learns a few rudimentary words and things. Uh, but you know he has a couple of instances with that. The, the one with the, uh, the the shepherd girl, he frightens her. She falls into the into the the pond. He tries to save her. Uh, she sees him and she screams, and you know, he just, she just has this reaction to him, and that causes the hunters to come. The hunters shoot him, and then again you get the with the with the with the, uh, the hermit. He has a, a nice idyllic life there in the uh, the hermit's uh, uh, hut. You have that scene where the he's you know the, the he's the hermit's in bed and the monster is crying or whatever and the, it, it, it focuses in on the the crucifix that sort of lights up and the scene fades out but you can still see the crucifix and uh, I heard one commentary they said well that the Ted Key the, uh, the 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 editor did that and Whale didn't like it but he decided to leave it in I really can't believe him Whale had such total control over that film that if he really didn't like that he wouldn't have left it in. Uh, and then you have the other scene. Uh, then you know, so that he's in with the uh, the hermit, and it, it's all idyllic and pastoral, and just as it is with with the shepherdess. Uh, the hunters come in, looking. We've lost our way in the woods, John Carradine, and uh, they see the monster. And don't you know, Frankenstein made him out of dead bodies, and they so they, they end up burning his house down, and uh, the monster flees from there. So you see the uh, the idyllic pastoral scene gets disrupted. Uh, and uh, immediately turns into the anti-pastoral, which basically is also themes from uh, 
the First World War, you know, pastoral changing to the anti-pastoral. So you have you have a lot of that. I think there really is a lot of a lot of imagery in there. And uh, as I was saying before, uh, there's a, a book out by a, a history by a history professor named W. Scott Poole, and he, he wrote his book is called. Uh, Wasteland, the Great War, and the Origins of Modern Horror, and he—it's a very good book. He basically goes through; it's much broader than my book. He looks at how the First World War uh, influenced the entire genre of horror, uh, pretty much going forward. But he makes a, a comment about whale that I think is is not correct. Uh, he says uh, basically, it doesn't make any sense to talk about the influences of the First World War in Wales movies because he never talked about them, uh, which I don't think that really matters. I think you can look, you know, what, 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 whatever he said uh, doesn't really matter. You look, at the, you look at the themes that came out of the war and you look at the films and I think you can deduce things yourself that you don't have to be basing it on what he, he particularly said. And somebody like that, you know, typically when somebody, a, a memoir, for example, generally is, is – uh, has elements of fiction. It's really like a, a first novel being uh, tied in with things that actually happen. So just because somebody says something about something doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing he said, which I think is completely wrong, is he said Whale worked for this studio, uh, Universal, you know, and Carl Sr. Uh, treated filmmaking uh, the same way Henry Ford treated making automobiles, you know, just crank them out and you don't really care what they are or what they say. And anyway, the director didn't really have any control over what was going on, which is is, is completely not true because Whale, I mean, even going back to Waterloo Bridge, he had a lot of creative control over how the film was done and and, and the uh, the elements of the film. Certainly uh, Frankenstein, uh, you know, he did the casting uh, it was what he wanted. He really did have a lot of control. Uh, uh, and certainly by the time of Bride of Frankenstein, he had complete creative control over everything. Carl Jr. was listed as the producer of the film, but uh, he was in Europe pretty much the whole time the film was being shot. So Whale basically was the producer and the director. Um, certainly, you know, virtually every frame in that movie is exactly the way he wanted it. So I, I think you can look at uh, at the themes from the war and the films and make an analysis. Oh, I agree. And I find it, this would be nice because we're, we're talking about James Whale. We can see now how the war caused a lot of these different images or, t- or themes or tensions in the movies that he was able to do. And I think that, you know, for listeners, you know, now when you go back and rewatch these films, you can take this and look at them in a different way. And one of the best things I'd recommend is like, you only scratch the surface of what you talked about in your book, because your book is, um, a hefty tome. It's a, it's over 300 pages, uh, the, you know, the great war yep. and the golden age of Hollywood horror for anybody that is a horror fan, especially universal horror uh, or just a film buff like myself. This is something that you really should probably add to your collection and, and go through and read. And I, I, it doesn't just deal with whale. I mean, we're speaking here because this, this particular, uh, I mean, it does focus primarily on whale because he was really uh, the main director of those universal horror films at the time. But uh, it does focus on other things. I talk about uh, the, the, the uh, First World War influences in the Black Cat, for example, uh, which has, you know, the Hjalmar Polzig is uh, it had betrayed a Fort Marmorish 
to the Russians when he was an officer in the Austro-Hungarian army and uh, Juvitas Vertigast, Bela Lugosi had been captured by the Russians and was tortured in a Russian POW camp and was coming back seeking revenge. And the beginning of the movie, the bus driver is talking about the, the great battle that went on at Marmarish and that the, the river below was like flowing in blood and all of that stuff. So there's a, there's a lot of First World War stuff explicitly in that movie. That's probably the, uh, the one universal horror that deals with the war most explicitly and interestingly there that uh, neither the uh, the screenwriter nor the uh, the writer were in the war they were all teenagers by the time the war ended so it's funny that the, the, the book that is uh, most explicitly about the war the, the film rather that is most explicitly about the war uh, was made by people that weren't involved in the war and another thing that that, that comes up with uh, and, and again as, as Poole said about whale another thing that comes up is a lot of uh, people who were participated in the war, including people that wrote about it, they don't really want to address it directly because it was so painful. They, uh, they, they, they treat it more obliquely. And I think that might be one of the reasons why Whale didn't treat the, uh, the elements uh, in the book benighted about the war as explicitly as, as Priestley in, in uh, the old dark house, as explicitly as Priestley did in the book. So it's uh, it, it's all very interesting. I mean, there's a, there's there's a lot there, and there's probably a lot more even uh, than what I've gotten in my book. And one of the things I said in my preface is I hope that that this inspires other people with you know perhaps uh, uh, more ability to go in even more in depth in these things, to do more research and and and, and examine these themes even more deeply and and further. Because see, this is something that really. Um, Sam Irvin told me, he said, when they were doing uh, uh, Gods and Monsters, that you know that there wasn't a lot out there about about Wales military service. There just there wasn't that much material, and uh, you know I hope that maybe this might spark a, sort of a cottage industry in, in this, and people may want to look into things even a little more deeply than I already have. Well, I hope so too, because the the longer we go from this event these events, the, the harder it's going to be to piece together information. Because, oh, sure. And, and, and things like that, because as yep. it's just by happenstance or circumstance or whatever, things are lost through the, um, the passage of time. And, sure. And now, Bruce, what are some ways people could, um, obviously you said the book is available on Amazon and virtually every online book publisher. Yeah, Barnes & Noble, uh, uh, what is it? Abe or A Books uh, is, a, is a collection. It's a very good website. It's, it's A-B-E-B-O-O-K-S dot com. And basically that's a, a uh, sort of an agglomeration of all kinds of booksellers uh, in, in the United States and Europe. And you can go in there, put in a title and uh, you can, there are generally multiple sources on there uh, that, that you can buy them from. So it's, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, pretty much, you know, Anywhere online, I would say, uh, you know, if you don't like, you get it on Amazon, it's very available. If you don't like Amazon, there's Barnes and Noble or try the A books or, you know, there's, uh, it's out there. <laughs> oh, it's out there. And, and, and listeners, I'll, I'll put have the book's title in the show notes. So if you're wondering exactly, like if you're listening to this and don't have a way to write it down because you're driving or whatever, yep. just look in the show notes, you'll see the title of the book. And also the offers, I'm, I'm calling him Bruce, but it's R. Bruce Craylin. Yeah, it's a, it's a long story. <laughs> yeah, C-R-E-L-I-N. You know, so you could if you search him, you'll be able to find the book there. But, you know, that, that, it's out there. It's available, and it's, it, it's a good thing to get. I know it's after the Christmas holidays, but if you got 
you know, sometimes people don't buy you a gift. They give you a gift card or they give you money. You know, I'm just saying, you know, mm-hmm. there's something you can well, do. I, I, I have suggested on my, on my Facebook page and elsewhere that uh, uh, anyone who's got a friend who's a fan of either uh, classic horror films or a history buff or even both, uh, this would make an excellent Christmas gift. Um. <laughs> yes, it would. And thankfully, I mean, it, it would be too late for Christmas of this year, 2021, but definitely in time for their birthday or Christmas of 2022. Mm-hmm. And no, it's still, it's still, uh, it's still, it's still, you uh, still got two weeks of Christmas, so there's still time. <laughs> well, no, but this episode's not coming out to 2022. <laughs> What's that? Oh, 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 that's right. Yeah, never mind. I forget. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking now, and I, yeah, I was not, I was not thinking. Uh, yeah, let's think of a time uh, machine. They're not going back to 2021 yes, to get it. There you go. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I slipped, slipped my mind. See, I got going. I got going on the hype machine here. <laughs> that's right. And, and Bruce, where else could people follow you if they want to follow you on, on any, any social media? Uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, Bruce Creelan. Um, and I think that's about it. I don't, I don't do Twitter or uh, any of that stuff. All right. Well, I want to thank you. And again. I'm on, I'm on what you, what, what's the, um, forget what the name of the, uh, the, the uh, thing that I just telegram. Is that Insta- Instagram? No, no, not Instagram. It's something else. It's, I think it, I think it's telegram. It's a sort of a, it's sort of a, a chat thing. There are a lot of different chat groups and everything on there. Uh, that's not really, I guess that's not really social media. That's really more of a, uh, you know, messaging service and, uh, you know, you can join groups, um, that are on there, uh, based upon your interests and whatever, but yeah, it's not really. So probably Facebook, I think is the, uh, uh, the most likely place to find me. And Bruce, I want to thank you again for taking time to talk about James Whale and your book and, uh, how the war influenced his work. Oh, sure. Appreciate it. And again, as I said, it's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more detail in the book than what I was able to discuss. And I, I hope I was, uh, hope I was not too incoherent and jumping around. And <laughs> I tried to be, uh, I tried to keep things uh, pretty much on, on an even keel, but I, I, I do tend to uh, you get going on one train of thought you, you, you and digress and go off somewhere else. Well, I think, I think listeners are used to that with, um, <laughs> with, with, with different people. When you hit a subject that they're, they're passionate about, they're going to go into those, um, topics and then they go down the little rabbit holes that go with them. And, uh, and I think that just fleshes out the work better, but uh, listeners to get the next, the James Earl retrospective will continue on. We have five more movies to go in the round table at the end. Also remember our next episode could either be a movie decided by the roll of a die or another interview, or like I said, the continuation of the James Earl retrospective, everybody, I hope you're having a good year, do something fun and have a good day. Bye.